if I said, hey, you guys interested in going to a movie? And if I said, well, and you said, uh, well, what's it about? And I said, well, it's, uh, it's about, uh, you know, there's some kidnapping and some, a bunch of lying in it. And it's going to be a lot of prostitutes and slander and some stealing. How about it? You'd go, uh, let's talk a little bit. I don't know if I want to bring my kids, right? Well, it sounds like a show you would never take your kids to, to watch. But isn't it interesting that it was out of this context that God creates and anoints his special nation? And as we read through the Bible, in fact, there's a sermon series that I'm looking forward to preaching uh, soon. It's... uh, it's talking about the rated X sections of the Bible. Those, those, those sections that are there, and we get kind of embarrassed when we read them, <clears throat> or it's talking about war and death and murder and how God used certain people that, wow, uh, we never knew that God could use people like that. I, I spend some time on it. But it's out of this group of relatives, some of them scary relatives, Anybody got scary relatives? Uh, the relatives that, you know, you, you don't really want to sit around the Thanksgiving table with. And, you know, some of the relatives are, are saints. And for some reason, God kind of <clears throat> pulls them all together. And that's the group of people that the Messiah came from. There's a central theme in the Old Testament as we read through it really fast. As you all know, we're reading through the the whole Bible in in 31 weeks. The the central theme, one of them in the Old Testament is that God chooses and uses improbable people. Is there an amen in the house? Later in the story, we will read the story, uh, later in our reading, we will read the story of Moses who didn't have a pure beginning, did he? He murdered out of anger, and we'll read the story of Rahab that was a prostitute, and God used her. We'll read the story of David, who was also a murderer and a liar and a, an adulterer. There's interesting characters like Samson, who, in my opinion, was like the first Fabio of the Old Testament. You know, if you're old enough to know Fabio, man, he just had that beautiful flowing hair and muscles, you know, you know, kind of like me, and, and uh, there was Isaiah that, you know, he preached naked. I don't know if you knew that, not all the time, but, you know, just once is, is bad enough, in my opinion. And, and don't get me started with Jonah. He was a bit strange. He let, you know, he didn't take Ubers. He took a fish wherever he wanted to go, so he was a bit odd. And, and it's interesting that, that I think it was <clears throat> generous of God to include broken, sinful improbable people who help to reveal his story. Why do I believe that? Because that gives me hope. That gives me hope that perhaps God could use me, an improbable person from Fulton, Missouri, just a hillbilly town of 14,000 people and we were known for raising mules. That's what Fulton and Callaway County was all about. Perhaps God could use me too. 
There's another central theme as I read through the Old Testament, and it's this. God always keeps his covenant with his people. Always. Never a question. He keeps his covenant even when people don't keep theirs. Don't raise your hand. Because I'd be raising my hand too. He keeps his covenant because he has this grand, this grand overarching intended outcome that's really hard for us to grasp. You see, he wants to bring us back into the warm fellowship that he originally planned with Adam and Eve. I'm going to keep saying that. I've said it for the last three sermons, and I probably will say it every 31 sermons because I want us to grasp it. God's intention, his intended outcome is to bring us back into the same level of warm fellowship and relationship that he created originally with Adam and Eve. Wouldn't that be great? So let's come up to speed with the story. As you all know, if you're reading this together, and I really hope that your family is committed to this, uh, we're reading really fast. And unfortunately, I can't really slow down and look at one particular story most of the time. Sometimes I can. But we're reading really fast through Genesis right now. Uh, so we, we've talked about Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, and now we're past the Tower of Babel and Noah and the flood. We already talked about Abraham and Sarah, and, and uh, we will very quickly get into, into Jacob and, and Joseph and the 12 sons right now. Uh, that, that makes me exhausted just thinking that it just took us three weeks to get through that, but that's how fast we have to go if we're going to see a big picture of the whole Bible in 31 weeks. This week, as you read, you're going to be introduced to Joseph whenever he was about 17 years old. His great-grandfather was Abraham. Just get this in, the, in your mind. So Jacob's, or Joseph, Joseph's great-grandfather was Abraham. His grandfather was Isaac. His father was Jacob, who was later named Israel, right? Israel, which means father of nations, father of God, who was the father of God's nation. Now, whether Joseph recognized it or not, he allowed his, his lower story uh, perspective. Remember, there's God's grand perspective, and he, he can see everything all at once, Right? And then we are calling the lower story what each of us can individually deal with like right now. It's, it's very myopic. It's, very, uh, it, it's just close to us. We're seeing the pain and suffering, but God sees it all. So whether he recognized it or not, Joseph allowed his lower story of enslavement and punishment and betrayal and even success to fulfill God's grand story, God's grand perspective simply because he trusted God. He didn't understand what was going on. He didn't really recognize what God had done to bring him to this one place. 
And he certainly didn't know the grand story that was going to come from his lineage. But he trusted God anyway. If you don't mind, just sit back and let me just kind of tell you the story of Joseph's life. And then I'm guessing there'll be a few life lessons, if you know me, uh, at the end, okay? So the first thing I want to say is Joseph's family was not perfect by far. In fact, he, he might be just like your strange cousins that come to Thanksgiving meal. They were really strange. I, I would love to tell you that the family that started God's anointed people that we now call Israel, they were all godly and pure and smart and good-looking like all of us. But they weren't. The family dynasty could hardly get along with each other. His father played favorites. Now, I would encourage you... Dads, don't do that. It always gets you into trouble. Now, Matthew's your favorite. That's okay, Nick. But once that second one comes, you got to equalize them, okay? Joseph's father, Jacob, would finally have 12 sons, but Joseph was his favorite. Jacob loved his son Joseph more than his other brothers. He gave his son a special coat of of many colors, and his brothers were jealous of him. In fact, it says in Genesis 37, 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. That's pretty strong words. They hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now, Joseph was a dreamer. To make things worse, Joseph would dream certain dreams of his brothers bowing down to him. Now, I've got brothers, and it's just two brothers and a sister, and, a, and I was the youngest. And if I said that to them, man, they would come after me. But he had 11 brothers. He had a huge set of siblings. And unfortunately, young Joseph, in his innocence, would share these dreams with his brothers, and it did not end well. You can imagine how his older brothers responded whenever he would retell the stories of his dreams about how one day he would be the master over them and they would have to bow to him. That doesn't go well with older brothers. Well, his older brothers decided to get rid of him. His dad told Joseph to go check on his brothers who were out uh, with the the sheep out in the field and they saw him coming a long distance away. And so the brothers got together and they took the opportunity to rough him up. They, they, they quickly made a decision that they were going to rough him up and they were going to throw him in the pit. They didn't quite know what they were going to do when they got him in the pit. All they knew is they couldn't kill him. They could not have that on, his hand, on their hands. So they threw him in the pit and then they saw some camels coming and it was the traveling salesman and they were probably selling skillets or, or something, you know, door-to-door, whatever it was. And they got an idea, let's sell him to this, this traveling salesman and just get rid of him. We, that way our hands would be clean. We didn't murder him, but yet we could get rid of him. They wouldn't technically be guilty of murder, but at least they could get rid of this brat for good. But there was the matter of proving his death to their dad. The brothers took that special coat of many colors and 
they ripped it and they, they, they drug it in the mud and then they, they got some blood and they, they, they dipped it in lamb's blood and they sorrowfully brought it to their father and just as proof that probably a lion caught his favorite son and took his life and drug him. We don't know where he is, dad, and oh, we're so sorry. And needless to say, Jacob was devastated. His favorite son was gone. He thought, right? He thought they were gone. And once again, dad was focused on his lower story, the pain and the loss of a son that he loved. Little did he know, God had an upper story perspective that dad didn't quite understand yet. Well, Joseph had been anointed by God. I want you to look in Genesis chapter 39. We're going to spend most of our time here. It says in verse 1, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. So back in Egypt, Joseph had been sold as a slave to the captain of the, uh, of the guard for the mighty Pharaoh. So the salesman uh, sold him to the captain of the guard. Now that can't be good, right? I mean, that's just horrible. His dream was that he would be the master, and now he's a slave. He's now in another country. They speak another language. It's a different culture. They worship a different God. But notice what the next verse says. The Lord was with God, and he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes. It's almost as if God is saying, Joseph, I know what your lower story looks, I know that it looks quite dim. I know that it looks unfair right now because now you're a slave, but if you will trust me, I have a much bigger plan for you. Joseph is now recognized by others as blessed of God. So, quickly, he becomes the person put in charge of Potiphar's house. Now, let me put this blessing and this authority level in perspective. It would be like the chief of staff for the U.S. president finding the lowliest sewer cleaner in D.C. the keys to the entire West Wing with all of the authority. That's what this was. They took a prisoner who was a foreigner who probably barely spoke the language and they recognized that God's hand was on him and so they brought him out of the cellar, out of the prison, out of the chains and said, you are in charge 
of, my, of the master of the, of the country, his entire house. You have control over everything. Now, I often say that I could easily be a male model for Nerds Are Us. Some of us have faces made for radio. Right, Tom? I'm not saying that you are, but I am. Not so with Joseph. Joseph was not only successful, but he was handsome. Scripture says in 6 and 7, now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. It sounds to me that Potiphar's wife had watched too many Desperate Housewives shows. Joseph's boss not only recognized that he was blessed, but his boss's wife wanted what Joseph had. Have you noticed that when people are around blessed people, they want to hang around you? They want that kind of peace. They're interested in that genuine smile, and they want to know what's behind that smile. They recognize the calm in the storm. But Joseph put his trust in God when he could have easily found revenge. He could have easily found revenge for what happened to him. Potiphar's wife encouraged him to commit adultery with her, but he continued to respond with his commitment to God in mind. He said, my master has withheld nothing from me except you. He's talking to the wife. Because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Now, I'd love to tell you that the story ended well, at least from Joseph's perspective, but it did not. One would expect that he would be rewarded for his obedience and his focus on God, not so, at least from what he could see at the moment. His godly choice put him back into prison. Potiphar's wife took his outer robe as he was trying to run away from her, but he, she grabbed his outer robe and built a story around it to get Joseph in trouble with her husband. She tells her husband that Joseph tried to rape her. Potiphar put, uh, puts him in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. Archaeologist tells us that during this era, prisons were normally large pits dug in the ground where prisoners would wait for their punishment, torture, and probably death in darkness. So this is what waited for Joseph. And for what? Honoring God by refusing to sleep with his master's wife? That's what he gets? And from the lower story perspective, Joseph appeared to be abandoned by God. He could just see a very thin slice of what was going on, and he didn't recognize the bigger picture. All he knew was he tried to be the best son 
and he got thrown into a pit. And then he got slow, uh, sold into slavery. And then he got put into great leadership. And because of his, his desire to be a holy, godly man, he gets thrown into prison again. But divine words from an upper story are whispered in verse 21. It said, but while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him and showed him kindness and granted him favor. So once again, God joins Joseph in his suffering. Once again, God gives Joseph a special blessing, even in the worst of situations. Little does Joseph know it, but God is giving him training and trusting during the difficult days because a grand opportunity will be ahead that's going to require great faith. Well, Joseph's difficult lower story positions him to fulfill a large portion of God's upper story. I'm sure that Joseph felt like he was riding a seesaw. One minute, he'd be, he'd be down in the pit. One day, he'd be the favorite son, and then he'd be down in the pit. And one day, he'd be, he'd be slow, uh, sold into slavery and then brought back out as, as a favorite employee. And then his, the, the wife would throw him into jail up and down and up and down. What would be next? I'm sure he was thinking over and over, what is next? Well, little did Joseph know that God was going to uh, once again bless him in the middle of his prison experience. He'd realize later that it was only because of his imprisonment that the entire nation of Israel would be saved. It Let me say that again. It was because of one man's imprisonment that the entire nation of Israel was saved. The Bible tells us that after two years of being in prison, the Pharaoh had a dream. Joseph was known as a man of God, and he was summoned to interpret the dream, his interpretation was this. Egypt would have seven years of bumper crops, followed by seven years of drought. That's pretty scary. To survive the famine, as he prayed and listened and interpreted the dream, to survive the famine, they would have to carefully reserve the extra crops. So Pharaoh recognized that God had blessed Joseph with wisdom and strategic planning. So he puts Joseph second command of all of the land. Once again, remember where he was yesterday in the bottom of the, the prison pit. Today, after the interpretation of the dream, he's now put second in command of the entire country. Well, Joseph chose to trust God. Joseph could hardly believe it. At one one moment, he was curled in the bottom of darkness in 
in the, the dirty the pit of prison, and now he was once again in charge of the nation. He had been falsely accused. Now his accusers were bowing to him, begging him for help because the drought was coming. But at each step of the journey, when it looked as if God and his family had abandoned him, even then he he chose to trust God. He chose to believe that even though he didn't understand it, God knew what he was doing. That has to be a purposeful choice, doesn't it? A choice that must be made before things get hard. Now, I want you to recognize something, something that is much easier for us to see where we stand than, than it certainly did for Joseph. We, we now have many, many years to study this story and watch the development of Israel. Joseph didn't. Joseph's life seemed to be un, an unpredictable series of roller coasters. Out of control, disappointments, unfairness, right? Do you remember me saying that our lower stories tend to be short-sighted and selfish? Joseph could have easily pouted to God about how painful and unfair his life had been, right? So even though Joseph's lower story seemed to be out of control, God's grand story was in perfect control. Marcy, could you bring me my water? Joseph was perfectly positioned to fulfill God's greater plan. Thank you. Joseph was perfectly positioned to fulfill God's greater plan. As the days of plenty went by, Joseph showed himself as an extremely strong, strategic, wise leader. He reserved the bounty and decreased how much grain people were to use even in the, the first seven years when things were amazing. If, if any of you have ever grown up on farms or been on farms, there are some of those years where it's like you're amazed at how many bushel you get out of, out of that field, out of that acre. But then there are other years that you're like, I thought I put seeds in the ground. Nothing came up, right? The drought came, and because of his wisdom, not only, not only his countrymen were cared for, not only were the people in Egypt cared for, but there was enough for even the foreigners to come and buy from Egypt. That's how much extra he had saved over that, those last seven. So the first seven years were bountiful. So he took the, the top bounty and saved it. And then he also took some of the normal and saved it. So that in the next seven years, when they got very little crop out of, uh, uh, grain out of the crop, they had enough for everybody to eat. And even the foreigners could come. 
And Jacob, Joseph's father. Let's not forget that there are still the brothers. And there's still a hurting dad thinking that the favorite son is dead. And so Jacob, Joseph's father, hears that there is plenty of food in Egypt, so he sends all of the boys, all of the sons, save one, Benjamin, to see if they can buy food down in Egypt. Remember, they're in Israel. They don't realize that the man that they have to talk to could keep them alive. They don't realize that that man with all of the authority to keep them and all of their family, the Israelites, alive is their brother that they horribly treated. So after several emotional encounters, and Joseph doesn't say anything to his brothers, he just kind of treats them as if he has no idea who they are, just as foreigners. Finally, after several emotional encounters, he reveals himself to them. They're afraid that he would take revenge on them, which he probably had the right to do, but he responds with great tears. He responds with love and kisses and hugs his brothers. He has them bring his entire family back, including dad, back to Egypt so that he could ensure their safety. They were hurting because they too were going through a drought. They were dying. And so he says, bring all of my family, all of the cousins, all of the aunts and uncles, bring everybody as, that's a part of our household to Egypt because I will protect, I will make sure they have all the grain. And he gives them a very fertile land called Goshen. How did Joseph respond with such love? How did he have such an amazing attitude through it all? How did he forgive his brothers after they, what they did to him? I think the answer is clear. Somewhere in the journey, Joseph caught a glimpse of God's upper story plan and recognized his role in it. Listen to what he says to his brothers. I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land. And the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, 
but God. Later, he said it as succinctly as he could. He said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. You think there are any lessons here we could wrestle with? Let's try. Here's the first thing that I want us to remember. When we align our lives with God's upper story, it enables us to process the difficulties in our lower story. Our challenges of faith should be seen as preparation. Are you going through a difficulty right now? You need to be asking, how can God use this that I'm learning to help someone else? Going through a medical challenge? How is God going to use this so that I can help somebody else through a medical challenge? You see, being forced to our knees should always be seen as growth opportunities. God will always, always, always use the challenges that we're going through in our lower story to train us, to strengthen us, and to help someone else. The second thing is this. God's plans cannot be thwarted by humans. God's plans cannot be thwarted by sinful humans. In the end, God can use even the selfish actions of his enemies for the redemption and salvation of his people. His brothers did something awful. Threw him into enslavement. Potiphar and his wife did something awful. They lied and slandered him and threw him back into prison. But time after time, God sees this bigger picture, and he knows what's going on. And even though right at that moment, the one in prison does not recognize what's going on, and he just sees the darkness and the dirt and the lack of food and how unfair it is, but God sees the whole thing. What you meant for evil, God meant it for good. Here's the third one. God can redeem our failures for his success. Is there an amen in the house? God can redeem our failures for his success. God can use our seemingly failed lower stories to fulfill his grand story. My mind goes back to the church that I just pastored in Grandview, Washington. We had a wonderful lay leader by the name of Larry Marchant. He was probably one of the best lay Bible teachers, great friend, mentor, owned a vineyard. And I, when I preached on the vineyards in the New Testament, I would go to his vineyard and say, Larry, talk to me about the vines. Talk to me about the fruit. And he just did a wonderful job. He really knew how to, 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 
to understand the scripture. And as he held the, the, the vines and the fruit in his hands, we would, we would meld the two. And it was just a wonderful opportunity to learn under Larry Marchant. But one night, he testified to me that, that 30 years previous, he had been a hippie. He had grown, he had grown up in the 60s and 70s, and, and he had a hot rod, and he was pulled over by the police officer back then, and he, he was very nervous because he had a very large quantity of marijuana under his, his driver's seat. And he was so thankful that it was not seen because it was at that moment that he recognized his life had a fork in it. And he decided to follow Jesus. He decided to give himself solely and completely to Jesus. Little did Joseph, Joseph's brothers realize that by selling Joseph into slavery, God would, would turn their act of jealous hatred into a way of salvation for the entire people, the entire clan. Joseph didn't realize that his enslavement would give him an opportunity to feed millions of his own people, saving them from destruction. Joseph finally said to his brothers, what you meant for evil... God meant it for good. Have you ever had an experience where looking back, you can see God redeeming a very bad decision that you made? So many times I've looked back and thought, how in the world, Lord, did I get here when I was there? But God redeemed now, Joseph lived 110 years. When we look at Scripture and read his ups and downs, we might think that his entire life was full of pain and imprisonment and suffering. Not so. His first 22 years were pretty rocky. But we also know that he had 71 years of really good years of serving God. How rich it must have been for him to look back and realize that he was a part of God's upper story. So he watched his family come to Egypt during that drought and grow from dozens to hundreds to thousands to maybe even millions in, that 50, in those 50 years. And I can imagine him pulling on his white beard at age 100 or 110 thinking, wow, that was so worth it to go through all of those challenges, imprisonment, being beaten and enslaved because God used me while I was in prison to help save all of my people. The Apostle Paul reminds us, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according 
to his purpose. Would you please stand with me? Joseph, I'm sorry, Jennifer was a young high school student with a big dream. She dreamed of going to college and becoming a nurse. Congratulations, Emily, for being accepted into nursing college. Isn't that great? She just got the news this week. But Jennifer had a dream that she wanted to become a nurse. She imagined being able to make a difference in the lives of hurting people. And she knew that if she was going to realize her dream, it was going to be a miracle. Her family was not positioned financially to help her. In fact, if this was going to happen, she was going to, have, she was going to be the very first person in her entire family to ever go to college. This was a huge dream. So Jennifer worked hard. She saved every dollar that she made, hoping that one day she would have enough to pay for that very first year of college. They had already accepted her. Every paycheck was cashed and put in a box in her little bedroom. To save money, she continued to live with her parents. Well, actually, it was her single mom and her 14-year-old brother. Her brother had some run-ins with the police and had begun to get in, in trouble in school, and it was no, no secret that he had been experimenting with, with illegal drugs, but she loved his, her brother and prayed for him every day. And one week, she went to cash her check and bring it back to the shoebox that she hid in her bedroom and opened the box and realized that only a $20 bill was there. She was crushed because she realized that her 14-year-old brother who was addicted to drugs had come and taken all of her money except $20 to support his drug addiction. Her dream seemed so much further away now because of her brother's betrayal. The next, the next Sunday, young Jennifer went to church where her pastor was speaking about forgiveness. During the service, she forgave her brother. Not only that, she took that last $20 bill and put it in the offering plate. And she declared through that one single act of giving, she was all in. She would trust God to accomplish his good plan for her life. She wrote a small note to the pastor, put it in the offering plate about her, her commitment to forgiveness, told the story of her brother taking advantage of her and, and her commitment to trust God for her education. If that dream would ever come true, it would be God. And she signed it, Jennifer. Now, she attended a pretty large church. The pastor had no idea who Jennifer was. He searched all week, never could find her. The next Sunday in the, serv in the first service, the pastor told the story 
without giving any names. It was a story of forgiveness and trusting in a God that had everything under control, even if things don't look perfect. And after the service, a couple came up to the pastor with tears in their eyes. (laughs) And along with two other families, they said they wanted to pay for all of Jennifer's college tuition, not just for the first year, but all four. Jennifer's lower story was full of betrayal and anger and disappointment. But when she came to a place that she could trust God with open hands, in spite of her circumstances, she discovered that he is indeed trustworthy and has not forgotten and has not abandoned her. I know some of your stories. I've talked to some of you. I know the pain that you're dealing with. You shared it with some of our church family. I know what's going on with your marriage. I know some of the health challenges. I know some of your dreams. When you align, when we align our lives with God's grand upper story, It enables us to process all of the junk, all the stuff, all the disappointments that we might experience in our lower story. We're going to sing this morning, and I can't help but know that God is inviting some of us this morning to do what Jennifer did and just say, I forgive. Or I don't understand. I give up. Or recognize I can't do it. But what if God is waiting for you to come to that place and just say, I I take my hands off. And I invite you to bring me perspective my attention is going to be on God's grander plan instead of the stuff that I see in my plan. As we sing this song, if you'd like to come to the altar just as a sacrifice of saying, Lord, I, I give it to you. Whatever it is, I, I just give it to you. I take my hands off of it and I open my hands for you to take out of my hands or put into my hands whatever you know to be best. Please come as we sing, and we'd love to pray with you.
the sound of his voice and seas that are shaken and stirred can be calmed and broken for my regard through it all
Father, your people here hear you. We hear your voice. And Father, we cry out to you, recognizing that you love us and you want the best for us. And you see us. You see us in the darkness. You hear our questions when we are in doubt. You recognize our emptiness. You know when our nothingness pokes its head out. You know our temptation. You know our wonderments. You know our past and our future. You know it keeps us up at night. You know our fears and our anxieties. We want you to know that even then, we trust you. Even then, we commit our lives to you. Even then, we desire to serve you and worship you and honor you with everything that we have, everything that we say even in our doubts, even in the darkness, even in our brokenness, we worship you. We honor you. We celebrate you. We are redeemed and justified and sanctified and given a place in heaven prepared for us, and we're so looking forward to that. But today we live here. Today we are bringing your kingdom here through the work and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So even then, as we live here, we will serve you. Father, we ask that you would give us a better picture of the grand story. But if you want us just to have our perspective, that's okay. One day we'll see it all. When we're in our lower story, we have decided that we're going to serve you even though we don't understand. We commit our ways to you. We accept you as our Lord and Savior, and by faith we will trust you in this life. We will trust you when things are challenged. We we will trust you in the drought. We will trust you in the brokenness. We will trust you in the waiting. We will trust you. No matter what, No matter what you say, no matter what the news is, no matter what that person says across the fence, no matter how our boss treats us, no matter what the teacher tries to teach our kids, we will trust you. We recognize that you will use it to honor yourself. So we, your people, the family of God right here, want you to know that we're trusting you, we love you, and we look forward to how you will use our lower story in the grand story. In Christ's name, I ask. Would you receive this benediction? God's upper story 
weaves a tale of relentless pursuit. May you quickly realize, quickly recognize that God, indeed God is trustworthy. And may you live in the fact that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. So now, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, go in peace, for he has already gone before you. Hallelujah, aren't we so glad? Go in peace. Thank you.